man, I look crusty as shit. I look terrible as well. No, you do not. You look a little dejected. <laughs> I do, but I feel like my hair is all frizzy and I'm wearing a Stranger Things t-shirt with my grandma cardigan. Like- I like your grandma cardigan and I think your <laughs> bangs look delightful. They are greasy. <laughs> Could have fooled me. They look nice to me. Sarah's here to get a, a pep talk because my day is something. <laughs> um, I also had a little minty bee in the last 24 hours. Did you? I did. Last night, I couldn't sleep. I woke up at one o'clock and I just didn't go back to sleep. I was fully spiraling. It's and like, too. Yes. It's almost worse when like you... have someone in your home with you and you're doing that because he's just like dead asleep oh yeah he used to (laughs) hit me while I was having like sleepovers or like my sister would be in my room or something and it's just like I'm gonna die we're all gonna die Mm -hmm. nothing means anything and they're just snoring (laughs) yep and you're holding it in you're like (laughs) that was me but secretly you want them to wake up Mm mm-hmm yep Mm -hmm. 100% fuck dude life is gross sometimes it really is it is it's dark and it's rainy and we're in between holidays and it's just gross yeah I don't want to work I I haven't done anything to be honest I refuse to do my job this time of year I have to do too much of my job this time of year gross too many people in the grocery store. Yeah. People need to stop requiring food. I wish I could stop requiring food. <laughs> <laughs> How was Black Friday? Did you get trampled? No, it wasn't too bad. Mostly just constantly on my feet. And people ask the stupidest fucking questions. <laughs> A theme. <laughs> They will literally be standing in front of the giant pallets of water and go, where's the water at? And you'll just point at it right next to them. That's the water. Mm -hmm. This is all of your water. This is the only water that you have. It's like, check the toy section, I guess. I don't, this is the water. Uh, It says it right here. (laughs) They're using their husband eyes. (laughs) They can't find anything. That's annoying. Should we say who we are? Oh, shit. Um, that's Liz over there. She's a witch. That is Sarah over there. She's a Catholic. And we're going to tell you stories about saints and witches. That's it. That's the show. Goodbye. Um, so it's been a while since I've done a real big name. So I'm finally going to do St. Francis of Assisi today. I've been avoiding that for years, literally. (laughs) Um, As always with the big ones, there's so much information. I can't possibly get to all of it, but I'm going to do my best. St. Francis was an Italian mystic who founded the Franciscan Order, along with the Women's Order of St. Clair and the Third Order of St. Francis, which was for lay people, is for lay people, it still exists. Of the saints I've talked about on the show before, St. Thomas More and St. Elizabeth of Hungary both belong to the Third Order of St. Francis. 
Francis is also the patron saint of animals and the environment, and with St. Catherine of Siena is one of the patron saints of Italy. Big deal, this guy. There are many, many hagiographies of St. Francis, the first of which was written around 1228, just a couple years after his death. This is commonly called the Vita Prima, or First Life of St. Francis, and it was written by Brother Thomas of Celano one of Francis's fellow friars. So then from 1241 to 1253, we get a bunch more works about St. Francis, many of them firsthand witness accounts of different moments in his life written by his fellow friars. Thomas of Chilano is commissioned to write another hagiography, which is called the Vita Secunda, or Second Life. A bunch of stories about St. Francis are compiled in the Assisi compilation, Franciscan friars are now scattered far and wide, um, and they send in letters containing their memories of Francis. And then in 1260, St. Bonaventure wrote his own hagiography of St. Francis after visiting important sites from Francis's life. This hagiography was declared in 1266 to be the official hagiography, and the church decreed that all prior hagiographies should be suppressed that um oh you look happy <laughs> did it turn on <laughs> success um liz's computer uh has been resuscitated <laughs> yeah it's 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 back it's good okay good thank god, <laughs> thank god. oh jesus christ <laughs> <laughs> oh okay good 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 um so, yeah, this one by St. Bonaventure was declared the official one, and all the previous ones were to be suppressed. Um, fortunately for us, that did not happen, and we still have access to all the previous works as well. Love that for us. Um, anyway, finally, we have a few other 13th century works that track the development of Franciscan missions, beginning with their founding. Um, so obviously there's like a ton of material to work with. It's overwhelming. I don't have time to do like a full comparative analysis of everything. But what I did notice was that it seemed like the official, quote unquote, official hagiography, the latest one by St. Bonaventure was a much more stylized version. So a lot of times in the Vita Prima, the first one, Francis will just like do something. He'll just like the text will just state that he he performs an action or he like stumbles upon a place or he makes a decision of his own volition, um, like seemingly randomly. But in the official hagiography, he will hear the voice of God or he'll experience a vision or something that will happen later in the story will be foretold in the beginning. So... This is super common when we have like multiple hagiographies that are separated by like decades or centuries from each other. The later one usually is just a better story. <laughs> we have more story elements. There's foreshadowing, there's imagery, and obviously it makes the saint appear the most saint-like the most otherworldly, the most holy, etc. Um, so I find that fascinating. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the very first hagiography didn't include some of the details that we now commonly think of when we think of Francis. Anywho, let's get into it. 
In late 1181, in the village of Assisi in Umbria, a son was born to a wealthy Italian silk merchant named Pietro de Bernardone de Morricone and his wife Pica de Bourlemont, who was a French noblewoman from Provence. That was my hardest pronunciation. Out of the way real early. I still can't get it out of my head that when we say things, we probably sound like we're speaking um, (laughs) Simlish. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Did you see that on TikTok? (laughs) People were playing the... What's that song? That one country song? I don't know. But the artist recorded a Simlish version of it. It was like the song that's like country girl, shake it for me. Girl. Oh, my God. The Simlish version. It's very funny. And that he actually recorded it himself. Art into that. <laughs> Put his whole pussy into it. <laughs> for sure. Um. So... Pietro, the dad, Francis's dad, was away on business in France when the son was born. So Pica had him baptized as Giovanni. When Pietro returned to Assisi, he began calling his son Francesco or Frenchman. And this is thought to be like an homage to the circumstances of the son's birth. So Giovanni becomes Francesco or the Latinized Francis. Francis grew up pretty much your typical spoiled rich kid. He was handsome. He loved fancy clothes, good food. All his friends were also rich kids. He loved um, troubadours. They were the big thing back in the day. Um, And he loved to like listen to poetry and song and just like generally live his best life. Um, Something interesting I noticed in the beginning of the official hagiography, the later one, was this line, quote, a certain citizen of Assisi, a simpleton, as was believed, yet one taught of God, whensoever he met Francis going through the city would doff his cloak and spread the garment before his feet, declaring that Francis was worthy of all honor as one that should ere long do mighty deeds, and was on this account to be splendidly honored by all the faithful, unquote. So that quote was not in the Vita Prima. That's a later invention, probably to sort of sprinkle in that epic feeling of like prophecy and destiny. Another later invention is a very well-known anecdote in the life of St. Francis called the story of the beggar. In this story, a young Francis is selling his father's silks in the marketplace when a beggar comes up to him asking for money. Francis initially dismisses him like, get out of here. But then he can't stop thinking about this man. So he runs after him and gives the man everything in his pockets. His friends mocked him for this and his father scolded him. Um, Again, that's only in the later hagiography, not the first one. Anywho, in Francis's late teens or early 20s, he falls ill and remains ill for a long time. Um, This illness starts to change his view of the world little by little. While he's regaining his strength, there's this episode where he's walking through the vineyards that his family owns. He's looking out at this beautiful countryside, and he realizes that it's all empty. Um, It's pretty, but he doesn't feel anything when he looks at it. It doesn't mean anything to him anymore. Shortly after that realization, 
both the first and the last hagiography agree that Francis has a dream vision in which he is in a palace. And this palace is full of both Christian imagery and military imagery, like swords and lances hang on the walls next to crucifixes and statues. And in the dream, he asks, who does all this stuff belong to? And a voice with a capital V tells him that it belongs to him and his soldiers. So he wakes up (laughs) and he's like, cool, I'm going to enlist in the military. (laughs) Not not my takeaway. (laughs) And God does a major face palm. (laughs) He's like, hey should use less symbolism <laughs> right gotta be clearer next time he did not take an english class. <laughs> no he did not take an english class um that's funny because one time we accused god of not understanding a metaphor <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember when which is a weird thing to, the weird like beef to have with god <laughs> There are, like, many other things you could be mad at God for, but we went all in on the figurative language. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in 1205, Francis enlisted in the army of a nobleman to go to war in Apulia, which is in southern Italy. He only got to, like, the next town over, though. He did not make it far, like, half a day's journey, when he heard the voice from his dream again, sort of, like, grabbing him by his head and turning him (laughs) back toward home. Um, And the voice tells him that the vision he saw would not be brought by mortal counsel, but by divine counsel. Like, hey, you don't need to go follow this guy into battle. You need to basically, like, wait for further instructions from God. Um, So Francis is excited about this. He goes home and he retreats from the world a little bit. Um, He stops working for his dad. He stops, like, partying so much. He's just waiting for God to tell him what to do next. When he does see his old friends, they ask him if he's ever going to marry. And he says, yes, a fairer bride than any of you have taken. (laughs) Wow, you just (laughs) talk about my wife that way? (laughs) You dick. (laughs) Um, And they're like, oh, okay. Who's that going to be? Like, who's this hot chick you're going to marry? Why haven't we met her? And he replies, oh, her name is Lady Poverty. Okay. 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 (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of an asshole. Um, So he begins to, quote unquote, put on the spirit of poverty. Um, He would visit hospitals and give his clothes to sick people. He gave money to beggars. He bought stuff for poor priests for their churches. And then one day in Rome, he comes across a group of beggars outside St. Peter's. He trades his clothes with one of the beggars and then spends the rest of the day in this man's dirty rags. And I just want to play as a homeless person for a little bit. That's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> like, I wrote that cosplaying poverty is the best day of his life. He Ooh, loves it. Yes, he loves it. Um, yes. So now he's cosplaying poverty. And after this day, he spends a while sort of wandering the countryside in his rags, begging for food when he has to, but mostly just like being alone with his thoughts in the wilderness. Um, Check that off your bingo card, wandering in the wilderness. 
At one point, he comes upon a man with leprosy, and the hagiographies tell us that Francis has always been disgusted by people with leprosy and has hated being near them, but that he manages to overcome his disgust of this man and he kisses him. My first thought was like, I see the intent of that, um, but it comes across in a way <laughs> that like doesn't look great. Like, it reminds me of that scene in The Office when Michael kisses Oscar to prove that he's not homophobic. (laughs) Like, nobody asked for it. Mm -hmm. Like, that man did not ask for a kiss. But then I was reading more about how, like, like, there was a footnote in one of the Vitas, I can't remember which, that was like, oh, like, people with leprosy back then were, like, legally considered dead. And, like, okay, like, I could see how... That would have been sort of like this astounding thing to read about back then. Um, Now it's just kind of weird, but, you know, I get it. In the Vita Prima, there's no miracle associated with this interaction with the leper. But in the later hagiography, when Francis kisses the man, the man disappears. Like, poof, vanished. (laughs) (laughs) Which granted. (laughs) Um, yeah, so, um, he looks around, there's no one there, so he believes that it was Jesus who appeared to him. Um, again, later invention. And now we come to probably the most famous story associated with St. Francis. This is definitely the moment that I would think of when I think of his life, so I'll read the excerpt from the official hagiography. Quote, on a certain day, when he had gone forth to meditate in the fields, he was walking nigh the church of St. Damien which from its exceeding great age was threatening to fall, and at the prompting of the spirit went within to pray. Prostrating himself before an image of the crucified, he was filled with no small consolation of spirit as he prayed, and with eyes full of tears he gazed up, and he heard with his bodily ears a voice proceeding from that cross, saying thrice, Francis, go and repair my house, which as thou seest is falling utterly into ruin." Francis trembled, being alone in the church, and was astonished at the sound of such a wondrous voice, and perceiving in his heart the might of the divine speech was carried out of himself in ecstasy, unquote. That's like the San Damiano vision. Um, The hagiography continues with sort of like a cute little misunderstanding on Francis's part. Um, He thought that God meant for him to repair the material church. Um, So he goes out and sells all his father's silks and gives the money to the parish priest. But really, God was talking about the spiritual church. Like, God is like, oh, my God, (laughs) I really cannot (laughs) be clear enough (laughs) with this man. (laughs) This man is an imbecile. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so more on that in a moment. Um, But this... <laughs> More on that moron in a moment. <laughs> um, but this episode appears in the Vita Prima as well. It's quite different, though. In that earlier version, he's riding along on horseback. He's just been out partying the day before, and he rides by the church of San Damiano and sees that it's falling apart and basically just like tosses some money at the priest. The voice of God is not involved at all. There's no vision, no ecstasy, none of that. Interesting. In the later hagiography, Francis sells all his father's silks to pay for the church's restoration, and Daddy is not happy about that. 
Pietro beats his son, binds him, and locks him in a storeroom. But while he's out, while his dad is out, Francis's mother frees him, and he runs away to seek sanctuary at the Church of St. Damien. His father soon follows him there and has him arrested for stealing from him. There's really no communication between father and son. No, but he, I can kind of get where the father's coming from. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> my son is being weird. He won't get married. He's cosplaying as a homeless person. He keeps saying <laughs> rude shit to his friends. Mm-hmm. And now he's selling all my shit to go give to this dude to repair a church. No, from the outside, it looks completely bonkers. Yes, I agree. So his father follows him there and has him arrested. He asks the court to revoke his son's right to his inheritance as like restitution. Um, And then during the legal proceedings, Francis freely gives up his inheritance. He's like, okay, that's what you want. Like, you can have it. I don't want it anymore. Um, One version of the story actually has him removing his clothes during the hearing because they were given to him by his father. If no one asked for this, then it's not helping (laughs) Casey's stripping in court. That (laughs) is kind of the theme of St. Francis. Like, nobody asked for it. Nobody really wanted it. (laughs) But he's going to do it anyway. And he's going to cause a scene doing it. (laughs) Starting to gather that. Yeah, he. I, I think he was probably a Leo. <laughs> um, so the judge or whatever, I don't know if it was a judge, magistrate, the mayor, I don't know, somebody, <laughs> somebody, yeah, um, had to give him a cloak to be covered with. Like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> He's naked a lot. Which we sort of mentioned way back when, in episode 31, um, when Madeline was on the show, and we talked about, you were talking about the Louvier possessions, and how that convent was Franciscan, and the priest was always naked, and like forced the nuns to go around naked too. (laughs) Yeah, that's where this all comes from, unfortunately. (laughs) Oh, hooray. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it was exactly what Francis intended, but this is his legacy. (laughs) The consequences of his actions. Yes, mm -hmm, indeed. Although that priest in your story was like batshit crazy, so. Francis is not, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Not far off. Completely sane. (laughs) Right, he's not like a beacon of sanity himself. Um, So he renounces his patrimony, his inheritance, and continues wandering as a a beggar. He spends some time working in the kitchen at a nearby monastery, and then he decides to beg for stones so that he can rebuild the San Damiano church. So he would go around, he would collect stones, like one at a time, I'm assuming, or maybe a few at a time, all that he could carry. Um, And he would carry them to the church and like stone by stone, he rebuilt it. Um, And he must have enjoyed himself quite a bit because over the next few years, he restored several chapels in the country around Assisi um, in this same manner. I don't know if like he perhaps acquired a wheelbarrow or if it was like fully just like an armful of stones up and down a hill. A naked man with mm-hmm. one of those red wagons that kids have. <laughs> the radio flyers. 
just wandering the countryside fully naked like dick out <laughs> yes with a children's wagon <laughs> oh i don't really like that and yet i really like it what's that about um so his favorite chapel ended up being St. Mary of the Angels, and he lived in a hut nearby that he built um, for himself. And during this time, he also nursed people with leprosy. That was what he was getting up to. He was hauling stones around and he was kissing people with leprosy. One morning in the year 1208, Francis was attending Mass at St. Mary of the Angels, and the gospel reading that day was from Matthew, and it was the commissioning of the Twelve, which is when Jesus instructs the Twelve Apostles to go forth and preach to all nations, and gives them the power to heal sickness and drive out impure spirits in his name. This is very, very inspiring to Francis, and he out loud exclaims, this is what I wish. This is what I am seeking. This I long with all my inmost heart to do. And everybody else was like, shut up. <laughs> this is not the participation part of mass. Um, <laughs> this exclamation, I think, interestingly, is the same, exactly the same in both the first and last hagiography. Um, so he dresses in a simple, coarse woolen tunic no longer naked. Now he's got a tunic, thank God. Um, it's tied around the waist with a rope. Um, and he starts going around preaching about love, penance, and peace. Preaching like this, you know, like to ordinary peasants out in the country without a license was not common. People were definitely doing double takes on this guy. Who is he? Where did he come from? What does he want? I am, just for the record, now picturing him as the man who comes through our Walmart and occasionally preaches to us next to the beefsteak tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> He's a Franciscan. What does he preach about? <sighs> just letting us know the, the good word. <laughs> How God and Jesus and Satan works. Okay, sure. Yeah, very um, Christianity 101. You know, as, <laughs> sure. I've never encountered this information before. Right. Brand new in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely. He's so weird. <laughs> he wears one of those like fisherman hats. You know, the ones I'm talking about, the uh -huh. fluffy brown ones. Yes. Like the yeah. bucket hat. Imagine that full beard mm -hmm. standing in the produce section. It's like, do you know that if you don't believe in God, you're going to go to hell? Does he have a walking Sir, stick? I just work here. <laughs> Sir, I'm just trying to restock the beefsteak tomatoes. Does he have a yeah. walking stick? I have no idea. I keep erasing him from my own mind and then mm. I'm confronted with him again. So Sure. There's a guy at church um, who seemed like he might do something like that, who um, always had a walking stick and had a long beard and wore a hat. And so... That's who I'm thinking of. But I don't know. That's not a real Catholic thing to do anymore. Like, it was in the time of Francis, but, like, the Catholics aren't really out there preaching, preaching on street at corners. grocery stores. <laughs> no, we don't do that. <laughs> That's the evangelicals. Yeah, they're the weirdos who hand out Bibles on campus. Yeah, that's a bit much. Mm -hmm. Um. Yes, okay. So Francis was also performing miracles as he preached. 
And these miracles vary a bit depending on which hagiography you read, but there are lots of healings um, like you would expect. He'll kiss somebody with leprosy or some other horrific disease and they're instantly cured. One of the most famous miracles has to do with animals, which is why he's considered the patron saint of animals. I feel like that's why everybody picks him as their confirmation saint. They're just like scrolling through like the Rolodex of like prayer cards in their like grandma's drawer or whatever. And they, and they see, see animals. They see animals and they're like, I have a dog. <laughs> Let's like, just pick this weird done. naked man with the wagon who <laughs> likes animals. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They're like, I like animals. Perfect. Match made in heaven. Because <clears throat> you're like 13 at the time when you have to pick so like it'd be a lot different if they put in uh saint christopher with his dog head in there i feel like (laughs) dog head in the picture they'd be like yo that's me (laughs) yeah i feel like that went over a lot of children we would have a lot more um saint christophers as confirmation saints for sure yeah it's like always francis for boys and girls pick like whatever extracurricular they're into like the music girls pick saint cecilia the irish ones pick saint bridget (laughs) it's just whatever little tiny little commonality you have yeah um so this is from the vita prima when francis and his companions have been walking through the woods and have stumbled upon a large flock of birds Quote, when he saw them, being a man of the most fervent temper and also very tender and affectionate toward all the lower and irrational creatures, Francis, the most blessed servant of God, left his companions in the way and ran eagerly toward the birds. My brother birds, he said, much ought you to praise your creator and ever to love him who has given you feathers for clothing, wings for flight, and all that you had need of. God has made you noble among his creatures, for he has given you a habitation in the purity of the air, and whereas you neither sow nor reap, he himself does still protect and govern you without any care of your own. On this, those little birds, rejoicing in wondrous fashion after their nature, began to stretch out their necks, to spread their wings, to open their beaks, and to gaze on him. And then he went to and fro amidst them, touching their heads and bodies with his tunic. At length he blessed them. And having made the sign of the cross, gave them leave to fly away to another place. But the Blessed Father began to charge himself with negligence for not having preached to the birds before, since they listened so reverently to God's word. And so it came to pass that from that day, he diligently exhorted all winged creatures, all beasts, all reptiles, and even creatures insensible to praise and love the creator. I think this man is a little cuckoo. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's he's something all right he turns around his computer he's like why have we not tried preaching to the animals before this is an untapped market <laughs> this is an unexplored consumer base animals they don't get to go to heaven but they don't know that <laughs> they don't know that and we don't have to tell them <laughs> um <laughs> yeah there are like a lot more miracles related to animals. Like he, there's one where he like tames a baby rabbit, um, which like, <laughs> I think that the rabbit's are mother had miracles? just died. <laughs> or is he just like really good with animals? <laughs> I mean, what was the first miracle? The birds flew away when he approached them? 
They stayed. They didn't fly they, away. They stayed and then they flew away. And then they flew away after he told them it was okay to do so. Yeah. Um, there's Miraculous. one where he makes all the birds shut up. He's like, hey, stop talking. <laughs> Listen to the word of God. I don't know why he became like a New Jersey mom, but St. Francis Disney princess. Exactly. Yes. hundred percent. Um. So, but the part where he blesses the birds has remained a tradition in the modern church. So on his feast day, which is October 4th, many churches will celebrate a blessing of the animals where parishioners bring their pets to church and the priest will bless them. That's much better than them going outside and just blessing like <laughs> the Canadian geese on the pond. <laughs> <laughs> the geese would fuck you up. I'm scared of them. They're territorial yeah they're scary um yeah i always like the blessing of the animals i want like more shit like that and less politics and homilies um so i mentioned in the excerpt that francis had companions with him his preaching and his miracles had started to attract a handful of followers by the end of his first year preaching he had 11 of them the 12 men obviously 12 is a very significant number um, they lived in a deserted Lazar house or leper colony near Assisi, but they spent most of their time just wandering through the countryside preaching. In 1209, Francis wrote out a rule for his followers called the Regula Primitiva or Primitive Rule. We no longer have the actual text of this rule, but we know that it was simple and based on Bible passages and that the men were meant, quote, to follow the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ and to walk in his footsteps. Um, so now that they have a rule to govern them, even though it's like super simple, it's time for them to go to Rome and ask the Pope to approve their order. Their timing is perfect because right when they enter the city, they meet Bishop Guido of Assisi, whom Francis already knows. And the bishop is with Cardinal Giovanni di San Paolo, who agrees to accompany Francis and his followers to the Pope and to argue on their behalf. So they're like right in the sweet spot. Um, according to the official hagiography, Pope Innocent III's counselors tried to dissuade him from approving the order because um, they thought Francis's model was um, unsafe and impractical, to say the least. <laughs> Um, but after a few days of deliberation, the Pope had a dream in which he saw the Lateran Basilica about to crumble, but it was held up on the back of Francis, the humble young man he had just met. After that dream, Pope Innocent agreed to informally approve the order with the stipulation that when the group had expanded, because right now they're just like some dudes hanging out, but like when they get serious and have like a, an official rule and they're big enough, they can return and have an official audience. The group was then tonsured, which was important to signify their papal approval so that they wouldn't be labeled heretics, as had just happened to the Waldensians, for example. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, more on them in episode 17. This is also when various Beguines are either being beatified or executed, depending on the whims of whatever bishop happens to be <laughs> in charge in their area. It's crisis time in the church, um, this is also when confession is made a sacrament, and it's required by canon law to attend confession a certain number of times per year in order to remain in a state of grace so that you can receive the Eucharist. 
A big reason they did this, a big reason they instated this was to root out potential heretics because we don't want anyone who has different ideas receiving the Eucharist. It's going to say it sounds a lot like the book I'm reading right now on a small religious cult, and they constantly have to give confession that's recorded so that the mm-hmm. leader of the cult can listen to it. Yep. Um, and it's like, mm, weird. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And I was thinking of um, the Archbishop of San Francisco refusing communion to Nancy Pelosi. Really? Mm-hmm. She is excommunicated. Did you know that? No, I didn't. <laughs> Sure I'm not is. exactly up to date on the excommunication <laughs> list of the Catholic Church. Well, it's kind of like big news, but I guess like I'm Catholic, so like that's why I know about it probably. I don't um, even know anything about Nancy Pelosi, so. Well, it's because of her abortion stance, um, and she's Catholic, so yeah, but she's not allowed to receive um, the Eucharist in her, like by decree of the Archbishop of San Francisco. I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, The main one being just sort of like a sad image of old white men clinging to the tiniest scrap of power they still have over modern women. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the Catholic Church's involvement in American politics and its association with the evangelical church is going to be its downfall in America. Yeah. It's just a matter of a couple more generations. Um, anyway, before I spiral, <laughs> I could talk about this forever and I get very heated. So let's not. Um, yes. Yeah, so the original order was called the Franciscan Order of Friars Minor or the Lesser Brothers um, because they weren't exactly monks. They were just kind of wandering and they began their preaching in Umbria before very quickly expanding throughout Italy. The order became so popular so quickly because it was very different from the Benedictine order, which had held this monopoly in Western Europe for centuries. The Franciscans were everything that the Benedictines were not. They were not cloistered. They didn't follow the liturgical hours. They didn't have a strict schedule. They just preached casually whenever and wherever they could find an audience, even if it was like birds and lizards and worms and stuff. Um, Benedictines also were mainly nobility who wished to continue their lives of luxury, whereas Franciscans lived in extreme poverty. So it really was the new wave of like back to basics, simple kind of life that was very attractive, even for certain members of the nobility and royalty. One of these nobles was an 18 year old Italian woman named Claire who lived in Assisi. And one day in 1212, she saw Francis preaching in the church of San Rufino. She immediately knew that that was how she wanted to live as well. So that year on the night of Palm Sunday, she snuck out of her family home and she met Francis at the chapel of St. Mary of the Angels. And it was on that night that the second Franciscan order was established, a women's order that would come to be known as the Poor Clares. Claire would go on to become a saint, and I'll probably come back to talk at her at some, talk talk at her talk more about her at some point. Talk at you about her. Like I mentioned at the beginning, Francis also founded a third order for both men and women who wanted to follow the ideals, but for whatever reason couldn't withdraw from the world in the same way or take religious vows, like Thomas More, who was a lawyer for the king, and Elizabeth of Hungary, who was a queen. This order is now called the Secular Franciscan Order. 
after doing all of this establishing and founding and all this sort of like administrative work, Francis felt called to spread his message outside of Italy. So he traveled quite a bit. Um, Some trips were successful and some were decidedly unsuccessful. In 1212, he left for Jerusalem, but was shipwrecked off the coast of Dalmatia or modern day Croatia and had to return to Italy. The next year, he left for Morocco, but only made it as far as Spain before an illness made him turn around. And then in 1219, he went to Egypt with the goal of converting the Sultan of Egypt to Christianity. Or if he couldn't do that, he wanted to be martyred while attempting to do so. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, This was during the Fifth Crusade. And the game plan of this crusade was to reacquire the Holy Land by way of Egypt, which was viewed as like the key to Jerusalem. Why? I don't know. I didn't read that much about it. So Pope Innocent had just led the Fourth Crusade, which was like a complete and utter embarrassing failure. Um, And now they were just trying it again. At this point in the crusade, the Christian army had besieged the Egyptian city of Damietta. They had been camped outside the walls for over a year at this point. Boring. So Francis shows up to try and convert the sultan. And this excerpt, which I was so excited to find, is from the Historia Occidentalis, which was written by the Augustinian guy, Jacques de Vitry, who wrote the Begin Blessed Marie of Wani's hagiography. Um, So he actually met St. Francis. Worlds colliding. So Jacques de Vitry wrote this about Francis um, after his description of the Franciscan order. Quote, the head of these brothers who also founded the order came into our camp. He was so inflamed with zeal for the faith that he did not fear to cross the lines to the army of our enemy. For several days, he preached the word of God to the Saracens and made a little progress The sultan privately asked him to pray to the Lord for him so that he might be inspired by God to adhere to that religion which most pleased God, unquote. The Vita Prima and the later hagiography both mention this episode as well, but it doesn't appear in any Arab source. So I don't know what to do with that. They made sure to throw secretly in there. (laughs) Secretly, right. (laughs) And (laughs) I like to think that, like, they were just super polite to him. They were like, oh, yeah totally for sure and me at the supermarket (laughs) yeah exactly and behind his back they're like who the hell was that (laughs) like he was almost like too weird to like be mad about Mm -hmm. they're like well that was weird anyway moving on and they didn't write anything down about him at all so some sources say that the sultan granted francis permission to preach in jerusalem during their meeting but we don't really have evidence of that. All we know for sure is that Francis and his companions left Egypt for Italy in late 1220 and that Franciscans had already been preaching in the Holy Land beginning in 1217. Um, and they've continued to do so essentially uninterrupted up until modern day. So as the order grew, it needed to be reorganized. So it was divided into provinces and groups were sent to France, Germany, Hungary, Spain, and the Far East. Francis also developed a new rule for the order because it was growing at such a like alarming rate. When this new rule was officially endorsed by the Pope, Francis began to withdraw from the external affairs of the order. He wanted to ease out of any like authority he had had and basically just like fuck off into the woods, which 
Honestly, same. The tradition goes that around September 13th, 1224, during a 40-day fast in preparation for Michaelmas, or the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel, Francis had a vision during which he received the stigmata, the wounds of Jesus. This is the first ever recorded saint to experience something like this, so it was a bit of a shock. And it's really interesting because it's written in all the accounts of his life, but the Vita Prima glosses over it a little bit, which is unexpected to me. Like you would think something so shocking and interesting would be like, this makes the front page. It was like, oh yeah, and then he had the wounds of Jesus. Anyway, moving along. So like in the official hagiography, we get the full stylized story. But in the first one, it seems like the writer doesn't really seem to know what to do with it. Like the order hadn't decided what it meant for him to have this and maybe were a little wary of equating him too much with Jesus. Yeah. And we all know that Francis is not very good at interpreting signs from God. So <laughs> he's like, oh, oh no. Like, I hesitate uh, to decide what this means. <laughs> right, exactly. Do we kill um, me? <laughs> do, is it time for me to be murdered? <laughs> um, <laughs> right, because so far, so, like, figurative language from God has been not received properly. Yes. So in the official one, when we've decided, like, no, this is not a heretical thing, this is actually a very cool and interesting thing and, like, groundbreaking thing, then we get, like, the full deal. It's a whole, like, production, basically, what happens. So he's, like, visited by a seraph, an angel, who fills him with, like, joy and sorrow at the same time. He's, like, crying and throwing up and, like, shitting his pants and stuff. It's, like, (laughs) super emotional. Um, (laughs) and he like pierces his hands and feet but yeah in the first one it's like oh he had the wounds of Christ so you can see how it was refined once it was clear that the order was not going to be prosecuted which I think is really interesting um so having the stigmata was not like a chill situation obviously seems seems obvious but it wasn't like oh just a just a hint of the wounds of Christ and then they fade away it was like, no, like you are getting gangrene. Like, <laughs> like these are actual real wounds that you have that are becoming infected. So Francis had also contracted trachoma. Um, some sources say this happened while he was in Egypt, but that's kind of a long time for him to have it. So we're not sure exactly when he contracted it, but it's a disease of the eyes caused by infection with the chlamydia bacterium. Horrific, disgusting, awful. Um, It causes the inner eyelids to roughen and eventually just leads to like full on blindness. Like it's very crusty and gross. Luckily for us, it's been eradicated in the developed world with antibiotics, um, but it's still common in areas without proper sanitation. So Francis received care for his wounds and his crusty eyeballs um, in several cities. Um, as he continued preaching, which I'm sure was like <laughs> traumatizing <laughs> to people. He's <laughs> like, hello. And his hands are like bleeding and like <laughs> turning yellow and green and falling off. And his eyes are bleeding. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
So he received care in several cities, but he was unable to be cured. He did make it all the way back to his little hut outside the chapel of St. Mary of the Angels in Assisi, um, where he died in the evening of October 3rd, 1226, while reciting Psalm 142, which is a psalm um, by King David. It's like basically like, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very emo. Only two years later, Francis was declared a saint by Pope Gregory IX, who was formerly the cardinal who had been the protector of the Franciscan order. The very next day after the declaration, the Pope laid the foundation stone for the Basilica of St. Francis in Assisi, which remains today as the Franciscan Mother Church. Francis was buried under the basilica, but was exhumed because of fears that his body might be stolen. It was one of those things where the neighboring town wants the body because it's a special body and it'll make him cool and give him special powers. So they had to like basically dig his body like way deep down and cover it with a bunch of stones. Um, And then they lost it. (laughs) They forgot about it. (laughs) This is exactly like me bearing apple seeds in my yard as a child, trying to grow an apple tree, but the Uh squirrels kept digging it up. Mm -hmm. So I I dug deeper and deeper, and then I couldn't remember where the fuck I planted them. It's the human experience, really. (laughs) Bearing something and forgetting where you put it. We've all done it. At least you didn't do it with a human body. That's true. Could have been worse. (laughs) (laughs) You were just Johnny Appleseed in your backyard. (laughs) um so his body was actually not recovered until 1818 like they lost it lost it straight up like 600 years that's embarrassing i Um, would hate to be the person who lost it you're like can we just keep digging more holes (laughs) i know we're gonna find it i know this next hole we're gonna find it it was somewhere in this area i swear to god you have your treasure map that had an x (laughs) on it but it's all smudged up with your tears (laughs) oh no um yeah long time to lose a body in 1978 the remains were put into a glass urn and were replaced in the stone tomb so they were like okay this is getting a little dusty and crusty we're gonna bring it all together some more fun facts about St. Francis before I stop talking. Um, Francis actually invented the nativity scene in the year 1220 when he brought a real ox and a real donkey together around a manger that served as the altar for Christmas mass. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Leo, that's a Leo move. A Leo would do that. Absolutely. In another tale, Francis saves some villagers from a wolf who has been attacking them. He goes to the wolf's house. He knocks on the wolf's door. He's like, hey, are you in there? Wolf comes out. He blesses the wolf, sign of the cross, and leads the wolf back to the village where he is basically like, okay, you guys are going to get along now and you're going to sign a pact. (laughs) This is your treaty between the wolf and the villagers wolf you are not going to eat any more people that's very naughty villagers you are going to feed this wolf because he's a child of god too so you're going to like offer him like meat and stuff it's uh, (laughs) it's interesting yep Mm -hmm. 
1979, Pope John Paul II declared Francis the patron saint of ecology, saying that he was a reminder, quote, not to behave like dissident predators where nature is concerned, but to assume responsibility for it, unquote. And that Francis, quote, invited all of creation, animals, plants, natural forces, even brother, son, and sister moon, to give honor and praise to the Lord, unquote. That last part was a reference to the Canticle of the Sun that Francis had written. He wrote a lot, like a lot of shit, but probably most famous is the Prayer of St. Francis. So I thought I would end with that just to tie it all together. This one, fair warning, this gets me every time. So if I start crying, please know that I am mentally unstable. That's okay. I will not be (laughs) faced by you crying because I don't have a soul. (laughs) Perfect. We're a match made in heaven. This is the St. Francis prayer. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. That is St. Francis of Assisi. Interesting, interesting man. I didn't know much about him at all. Like, at all. Because obviously I'm not Catholic, so I'm Mm kind of out of the loop. (laughs) (laughs) It's like whenever Pinkney would be in class and he'd be like, you know this story from the Bible. It's like, I actually don't. I sure don't, mister. <laughs> I have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. He knows way more about the Bible than I ever did because he's a Protestant. I'm like, mm. I don't know shit about the Bible. So it was always fascinating to me, too. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea this was our, our folklore. <laughs> right. I haven't read this fanfic. Interesting. <laughs> no, it's interesting to learn more about St. Francis because he's one of the ones that you hear about even when you're not Catholic. Mm-hmm. And he's definitely one of the people that I kind of invoke whenever I see um, little animals out and about, like a a stray cat running across a parking lot. That mm-hmm. It's a very quick, like, please don't let it get hit by a car. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Same. Yeah, yeah please. please. <laughs> so St. Francis would have preached to the stray cat a the word of God, perhaps. It's nice to know he would have gotten down on his knees and, you know, preached the good book to the cat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't know if there are any other saints who would do stuff like that. No. <laughs> that I can think of. I don't Maybe even s- know how you preach the Bible to animals. Like, not the logistics, but like, what's mm-hmm. in it for them? Right. What right, like which passages are they going to resonate with? I know. <laughs> it's like, oh, I can't promise you like eternal life when you die or anything. Mm-hmm. But like, isn't this one really neat? This story right here? <laughs> and the animals are like, mm, for sure. <laughs> this totally applies to me. Teach me. Uh, okay. I'll do do my best. That's the tone of this show. 
teach me. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Against my will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell a very short story today about witchcraft and fairies mm-hmm. and the Inquisition um, in Italy back in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, a heads up that I am again working with uh, like tertiary sources, which cite fewer secondary sources than I would like. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just one source for their whole thing i am wasn't a fan um and they often gave no indication to what the primary source was even within those secondary sources so i just have to i have to trust these strangers on the internet that they're telling me the truth yeah well i've been doing that all my life and (laughs) where did you get you sarah i'm great (laughs) <laughs> I'm so mentally stable, emotionally stable, financially stable, all of mm-hmm. the above. I feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I decided to also trust the strangers on the internet. And I'm just going to tell you what they told me, mm-hmm. despite my frustration with them. Um, someday when I do an actual episode on a decent-sized and decently documented witch trial in Italy, of which there are very few, um, I'll talk more about the area and the time period and the conflicts that resulted in, like, the little pockets of hysteria that resulted in witch trials. Um, but today I'm going to focus on fairies um, and where they inter- intersect with witch trials. Um, And that mostly centers us around the Roman Inquisition, a group of people called the Benendanti, another group called the Donas de Fuera, and a woman known only as the Fisherwife of Palermo. Never heard of any of this. Cool. I had not either, which is another reason I get frustrated when I research sometimes because I can't figure out how to synthesize because everything I hit is something I've never heard of. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, The Roman Inquisition is more or less a sister to the Spanish Inquisition. They are different branches of the same tree. I think there are like three Inquisitions part of the Catholic Inquisition. Um, The Spanish and the Roman are two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, For more information on the Spanish Inquisition, you can visit or revisit episode 7, Yay Flagellation. (laughs) Yeah, where I talk about the Basque witch trials. Um, Mm -hmm. That episode discusses the intricacy of beliefs of the Inquisition and dispels this popular accusation that they were rampantly targeting witches, targeting, torturing them and executing them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, Secular courts are responsible for the torture and execution of witches on a mass scale. Um, The Inquisition was focused on heresy. um, And remember that not all witchcraft is heresy. Mm -hmm. Um, They did split hairs on what qualified and what didn't. um, And they later passed strict rules about how they were allowed to receive confessions, what they were allowed to do about them, and what they were and weren't allowed to do about accusations of people. Mm. Uh, most trials resulted in punishments like jail time or exile. There were very few executions. Mm-hmm. 
In Italy, the Inquisition didn't always run into cases of, I went to the Sabbath with the devil and signed his book, which is what they were looking for. Uh, Italy, like most areas, had a rich culture of folk beliefs and practices dating back centuries, beliefs and practices that weren't always perverted with a satanic narrative thread. Uh, it's which is the land of Strega Nona. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, So a quote-unquote witch might be thrown in the Inquisition's path. Tell them all about the local fairies. And they'd be like, okay, so where was Satan when all of this was Mm. happening? And the witch would go, why would Satan be there? (laughs) And the Inquisition's only real recourse would be to like slap the witch on the wrist. Because they're like, I don't know what to do about this. Mm. It looks like heresy. It sounds like heresy, but I don't know. Yeah. That's kind of funny. Yeah, like who's Satan? I don't know him. I've uh, what? What would he have to do with the fairy? I'm telling you a story about the fairies. Why do you keep asking me about the devil? Keep up, keep up. <laughs> yeah. In the late 1500s, early 1600s, the Inquisition butted heads with a group of practitioners called the Benedanti. They're similar to cunning folk, uh, which is important, but they also have their own little gig that they're running. In 1575, a man named Paolo gives a man named Pietro uh, like a charm to heal his son who's sick from like an undefined illness. Mm -hmm. A local priest, Scabaritza, and that's a total guess on how you say that man's name. Sounds good. um, Cool. Is made aware that this exchange has taken place and overwhelmed with curiosity just calls on paolo to tell him more about his folk magic this will have disastrous consequences sounded like that would happen yeah (laughs) um paolo explains to the priest that pietro's son had been possessed by bad witches malandanti Mm. And that he, one of the good witches, Benindanti, mm. was attempting to save the child. I see. Now I'm figuring out this etymology. Yeah. It's I'm getting pretty somewhere. basic. <laughs> one, one sounds like benevolent. The other one sounds like malevolent. I think I'm catching on. <laughs> <laughs> it's real easy to keep track of. It took me an embarrassingly long time. <laughs> I was like, hmm, interesting. They sound really similar. Paolo goes on to explain that uh, what the Benindanti are and what they spend their time doing. um, Essentially, the Benindanti astral project on very specific Thursdays during the year. I think it's four Thursdays. Um, Mm. They're called Ember Days. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are Mm -hmm. Ember Days? I I don't know exactly, but I've heard of them. They were important, like, legal and religious holidays where, like, things got signed and, like, people did important stuff on those days. Cool. I know nothing about them. Didn't bother to look it up because I just figured it was a made-up aspect of the story. I am being made aware that that is not <laughs> the case. I think, I think <laughs> it comes from the ancient Romans and that the church stole it, which is, like, on brand, and that they were, like... The there was like Lady Day, which was the Annunciation of Mary. There was Michaelmas, 
the um, feast day of Michael the Archangel. I think it's those four. And also like, I think Christmas was one of them and whatever the other in-between one was. But I might be thinking of some other set of four days. But anyway, yeah. I don't it, know. I real. put my blind faith in Sarah. But please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to look it up. But you can continue. I will be do listening. that and then inform me. Okay. Um. Anyway, on these very specific four Thursdays, they astral project. Um, and in their non-corporeal forms, they travel around with fennel stalks and beat the non-corporeal forms of bad witches, the Malandanti, who travel around with, I forgot to look up this word, um, sorghum? I don't know. The, the, the grain? Yeah. Is that okay. how you say it? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, sorghum you stalks. You got it, man. <laughs> There's a lot of letters in it, Sarah. <laughs> Okay, so the good ones have what now? Fennel. Fennel. I thought you said fiddlesticks. Fiddlesticks. (laughs) I'm lost. Okay. Fiddlesticks. Fennel good, sorghum bad. Yes. um, They're just whacking each other in non-corporeal form with these stalks. Okay. Um, Yeah. It's a good time. Uh, Anyway, if the Benedanti lose this invisible nightly battle, um, the Malandanti will gain access to people's homes where they might destroy property or spoil the wine in the cellars. Um, ultimately, the Benedanti are performing like acts of service to protect people's property and crops and blah, blah, blah. And if they win, things are good. If they lose, things are bad. And that's kind of how they explain the state of the world. I really like that. Yes, it's very interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Skabaritsa freaks out over all of the talk of witches. He's just like, this is great, but you've said witch like 17 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and my alarm bells are mm-hmm. going off. Red flags everywhere. Yeah. I'm deeply uncomfortable with the question that I've asked you now. <laughs> this whole situation. Um, uh uh-huh. So he appears in March 1575 in front of a vicar general and an inquisitor asking for guidance about what he's supposed to do with this whole situation. Mm-hmm. Um, he does bring Paolo with him, who continues to just word vomit to everybody about the Benedanti. Good for sure. him. Yeah. Scabaritza and the Inquisitor decide to investigate the situation, but after feasting with the locals, talking with Paolo, talking to Pietro, the guy with the sick son, um, and even another self-proclaimed Benedante, um, and he'll come back, they call off the investigation. And it's mm. likely that they just didn't believe anything that they were hearing. They're like, <laughs> invisible nightly battles that you can't prove in any way, shape, or form. Um, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, bye. (laughs) You have fun with that. Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. Oh, I did find about out about the Ember Days. Did you? Yes, I did. I was thinking of the Quarter Days. The Quarter Days are like a British and Irish thing that were um, Lady Day, 25th of March, Midsummer, Michaelmas, and Christmas. The Ember Days were a Roman thing. So it was right that they were Roman, but they were St. Lucy's Day, which is December 13th, and also the first Sunday of Lent, 
and also Pentecost and um, the feast day of the Holy Cross on September 14th. So those were those are Ember Days, and they're for fasting and prayer. And we don't really do that anymore. Yeah. And that's all. I'm glad that I know that they were real, though. Um, yeah. I have to stop assuming that everyone who gives testimony in a witch trial is just talking out of their ass. <laughs> well, a lot of times they are because they're being tortured. They truly are. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Ember Days. Mm-hmm. They do fancy nightly battles on those mm-hmm. days. Good for them. With fennel. With fennel and sorghum. <laughs> um, five years after all of this is dropped, a different Inquisitor, I didn't write down his name because I didn't give a shit, um, decides to revive this dead case and calls on Paolo um, for questioning. Paolo, when he gets there, has apparently learned to stop word vomiting in the last half decade. Because Smart. when they ask him, like, so you're a Benedante, um, he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Mm, okay, Paolo. No clue. Never heard that word. Don't know how you got my name. Clueless. Smart man. Mm-hmm. They recite for him everything that he's told them in the past, to which he says, I'd never do those things. That goes against God. Who do you think I am? Whoa. Um, so frustrated, they go gather up that other self-proclaimed Benedante that Scabaritza found. Um, and this man still has a loose tongue about everything, saying, quote, I'm a Benedante because I go with the others to fight four times a year. That is during the Ember Days at night. I go invisibly in spirit and the body remains behind. We go forth in the service of Christ and the witches of the devil. We fight each other. We with bundles of fennel and they with sorghum stalks. End quote. The Inquisition is frustrated with this testimony because this man swears up and down that the Benedanti work in service of God. He's like, these are special days and we're doing the Lord's work. I don't know what you want from me. Right. So they call Paolo again and they press him over and over because they want him to say something very specific and they're going to get him to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Paolo finally admits that he is a Benedante, but he lied to avoid punishment. Um, and he actually goes on to accuse a couple of local people of being Malandanti, bad witches, the ones Uh-oh. that they're doing battle with. Mm-hmm. Um, so they let Paolo go for a while. And then they recall him again for questioning. And then it's just mm-hmm. on and on. They're just like, I'm going to talk to you and then you can go away. And then I'm going to talk to you and you can go away. Mm-hmm. It's over and over. This time when he's questioned, Paolo asserts that it was an angel who recruited him into the Benedanti. Um, and the Inquisitors kind of grin at this because this is their in. This is how they're going to get him to say what they want him to say. Mm-hmm. So they steadily convinced Paolo through sessions of rigorous interrogation that he was actually approached by the devil in the guise of an angel Hmm. and that these nightly battles must actually be a journey to witches' Sabbath. So Paolo, who's probably sleep-deprived and tired and hungry and he just wants to go home and they are asking him the same questions over and over and over, he is like half hallucinating at this point. Mm -hmm. He eventually relents that the angel could have possibly been the devil in disguise because, you know, you are superiors in the church and you know more than I do. So (laughs) if that's what you're saying, then I guess you're right. 
How could that be? They know nothing of the fennel and the sorghum wars. <laughs> they know nothing. They know nothing <laughs> of those battles. Uh, imbeciles of these warriors plights <laughs> <laughs> poor paulo mm-hmm. the other benendante um this other man that they picked up is convinced of the same things throughout his questioning um relenting that the devil must have tricked him into performing tasks that he swore were for good not evil so even he's still like hesitant to completely say what they want he's like i thought that i was battling bad witches and like helping the community but if you tell me i'm doing the like devil's work then like i wasn't doing it on purpose oh um they each received only a few months imprisonment as a sentence so Hmm. again remember this is the inquisition even when i say that like it's a bad situation mostly it's just them being questioned over and over and over and maybe imprisoned for a little bit yeah still sucks though i mean they're probably it like sucks. farmers like they couldn't like work on the farm and they probably had like 12 kids to take care of and their and... wife was pregnant and had to do all the farm labor herself mm-hmm. i'm really so. like i'm weaving a narrative here <laughs> sarah and her fan fiction i really i'd i'd be going off in my head on tangents i really do <laughs> <laughs> um this inquisitor who i didn't write down the name of because it doesn't matter um the one who revived the investigation he continues to root out benindanti in area but at most turns he only finds like cunning men and women who are like dude just because i use folk magic doesn't mean that i'm a benindante right it's just (laughs) he's like they look the same streganona just making pasta (laughs) leave her alone please yeah the inquisitor's like how am i supposed to be able to tell the difference you guys have all the, the same abilities and stuff and they're like we're not all benedanti mm-hmm. um so a lot of times he goes to like um prosecute somebody and they're like why are you gonna prosecute me for something that i'm not yeah and so the case gets dropped hmm. um in the event he does find a self-professed benedante nothing much ever happens um sometimes there were jurisdictional issues because this is um you know the inquisition is ecclesiastical they still have secular courts they're coming from different areas um so jurisdictional issues that sometimes ended trials right there because they couldn't figure out who's going to be in charge of it where are we going to transfer them to who ultimately is in charge right now uh we just we can't figure it out so screw it just throwing the case out bureaucracy Um, yeah sometimes there this is funny there was a lack of men to transfer prisoners um so they're just like i guess we just let him go it's like (laughs) i i literally have nobody to move him from that prison to that place so like let's just let him out someone else is using the radio flyer (laughs) (laughs) some guys hauling stones up the hill in the radio flyer we can't transport he's he's naked it's a whole situation so I I can't spare a single man. So <laughs> yeah, let him, let him out. <laughs> and the inquisitor's funny. like, "What? That was not the solution." <laughs> there's just... like, it was obviously the solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also the case that sometimes in between, I said, you know, questioning them, letting them go, questioning them, letting them go, and then in between all of this in the trials, sometimes the um, Benindanti would just like move to a new town 
sell their house and go live somewhere else and the inquisition would like come back to the house and be like we're looking for barbara um it's fred (laughs) well do you know where barbara went she didn't leave a forwarding address (laughs) well beans i guess we can't prosecute her well oh darn anyway let's have lunch (laughs) (laughs) we tried our hardest Mm -hmm. yeah that would be me as an inquisitor i'd be like you know what i give up yeah, she's living like five miles that direction, Oops. going by her name and everything. And they're like, she's mm-hmm. lost forever to the ages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the most intense punishments I saw if a case even got to that point um, was a couple years in prison or exile. Most of the time it went nowhere. Good. Um, a side note before I move on um, was just that I did find it interesting as I was reading the little cases about the um, Benindanti that they would occasionally start accusing people of being Malindanti under questioning. Um, And those accusations were very rarely taken seriously. And sometimes they're what led to the case not being taken seriously. Or like, these people are just making stuff up about this weird, like, LARPing situation they Mm. do in the park. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're like, it just sounds so fake and I can't get over it. Yeah. They were probably chuckling. Mm-hmm. They're like, you're telling me that the mayor is the guy with the sorghum stock? Like, absolutely not. That's and he's not the real. reason that the crops go bad. Right. I'm like, okay. For sure, buddy. Right. Okie yeah. doke. <laughs> yeah. But mostly it's just, to me, the fact that accused witches were taking the opportunity to accuse the bad witches that they were spiritually fighting. That's what I found cool. Because it's like, can't beat them in the streets. Might as well just throw them under the bus in court. Let the judges Mm -hmm. take care of them. Yep. We're going to win this battle one way or another. (laughs) Right. Um, Another group of people the Inquisition ran into during the same time period was a group called the Donas de Fuera, um, and I am assuming the name is Spanish by way of the Spanish Inquisition's records, because the Roman Inquisition is the one that's leading all this, but a lot of Spanish officials may have just been more popularized in the Spanish records. Um, We don't know what they were called in Italian. Okay. To my understanding, um, Donias de Fuera is a term to refer to fairies, but also incorrectly by the Inquisition to humans who associated with these fairies. Um, It may have been correctly. It gets really mixed up, like the more sources you read, because people start using that term to also apply to the humans. Okay. um, Talk to fairies and deal with them. So it can be used for both. It's, mm. it's either the fairies or the human beings who talk to the fairies and, like, go meet with them in the woods and stuff. Like the supers. It was mm. the person giving the soup and the person eating the soup. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, these fairies are said by people to be male and female, um, despite the fact I think their name means, like, ladies from the outside. I didn't mm-hmm. bother to actually translate it. Yeah. Um, I just trusted the strangers on the internet to tell me what it meant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, as you should. Male or female, beautiful, um, and dressed in red, white, or black. They travel in groups with a leader or an ensign um, and visit infants in people's houses or give gifts to people like the ability to heal others. The fairies are known for having odd feet, like a horse's or a cat's. And it Mm. said at one point, which I didn't write it down because I didn't understand what it meant, (laughs) um, that they might also be round. (laughs) 
Like yeah. The feet might be round. I don't know what that means. Well, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> no, but they're like, it was weird. Trust me. <laughs> Trust me. If you saw it, you would also call it round. Round. It's the only <laughs> word for it. <laughs> round. Yeah, that means nothing. I don't get it. It means nothing at all. Okay. These fairies can shapeshift into animals, um, actual animals like uh, cats, but also a made-up animal that I didn't write down because I didn't know how to say it. Um, I believe it was A-Y-D-O-N. It's it's made up. It doesn't exist. Oh, okay. Is it round? <laughs> it may also be round. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> For more about the fairies, I'm going to turn over to a testimony given by the fisherwife of Palermo because her account does that thing where it plagiarizes like every single other account. So Mm. if I tell you more about the fairies, I'm just going to tell you what her account is. Yeah. Uh, The fisherwife, who is from a city that I am dying to visit um, because they have the really neat catacombs. um, Mm. The ones where like dead people are on the walls. Oh, yeah. I love a good catacomb. Yeah, that's the only reason I want to go to Europe is they have catacombs. Um, yeah, don't we really we, miss the opportunity? We really need them here. Where's our bone church? What were we doing? What a bummer! All this manifest destiny bullshit, and we couldn't take the time to build a decent bone church while we were at it. I'm telling you, it's the Protestants. Boring. Everything's so boring, sanitized boring. and boring. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> I'm I'm going to be sorry about that from till the day I die. <laughs> Blame the Puritans. Curse you, Puritans. Yeah. Uh, the Fisherwife is an unnamed woman who was brought to trial in 1588. In her account, she says that she was flown by a group of women on goats to, quote, a land called Benevento, which belongs to the Pope and is situated in the kingdom of Naples, end quote. Um, there are several stories about Benevento. Um, think of it as the Italian Blocola, mm. which is a place where the witches are, where the witches go. Yeah. Um, also, interesting, Benevento, I forget what it used to be called, but it's the same, like, Benendanti, Malendanti, Benevento was changed from, like, the bad version mm. to the good version. Got it. Got it. So it still carries a lot of that, um, like, stigma of it used to have, like, Mal in its name. Okay. Uh, Continuing on, quote, There was a field, and in its center a platform with two chairs. On one was a red teenage boy, and on the other a beautiful woman, whom they called the queen, and the man was the king. The first time she, the fisherwife, came there, she was eight years old, and the ensign and the other women in her company told her that she must kneel and worship the king and queen and all they commanded, for they could help her and give her riches, beauty, and young men to make love to. Mm. She was eight. (laughs) Oh my god, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Just keep that in mind, that she's eight, but the story is told in a way that it's like, clearly she has to have been older while this was happening this happened over a series of years got it got it they told her not to worship god or the holy virgin the ensign then made her swear in a book with large letters that she would worship the king as if he was god and the queen as if she was the holy virgin and she gave herself to them with body and soul and after she had so worshipped them they made the tables and ate and drank and thereafter the men had intercourse with the women and with her many times in a short period 
<laughs> All of this seemed to her as if a dream, for when she awoke, she did so in her bed, naked as if she had gone to rest. But sometimes they had called upon her before she had gone to bed so that her husband and children would not notice. And that's what I point out, because it's like, clearly this has to have happened for a series of years, because she, mm-hmm. she didn't have a husband and children when she was eight years old. Right. And without having gone to sleep before, as far as she could tell, she left and arrived fully clothed. She further claimed that she, at the time, did not realize that it was sinful until her confessor opened her eyes and told her that it was Satan, and she was not allowed to do it further. Um, but she still continued to do it until two months ago. <laughs> I note. mean, it sounds kind of baller, not gonna lie. Yeah, and it's like, she left filled with the happiness she received from it, and because the king and queen gave her means to cure the sick so that she would earn some money because she had always been poor, that's pretty much why she kept doing it, end quote. Yeah. It gives Isabel Godey in a lot of places. It really does. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, like, if, okay, maybe she's making it up, you know, but Mm -hmm. if she's not, and she, like, really believes that this is happening, one, that's terrifying, and two, like, what's going on? Is she, is it like really vivid dreams, like the same recurring vivid dream over and over again? Yeah. And this is, I mean, a popular account. And Isabel, go to you hear this about like the king and queen, and you go off to the place and you feast and you have sex and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. That if you grow up hearing this, either you're going to end up reciting it at some point if you're called in as a witch and mm-hmm. you're like, tell us a story and you're like mm-hmm. god it's the only one i know yeah or you may just start dreaming about some of this shit i mean we were dreaming about god being creepy and watching us because that's what they <laughs> told us as children yeah. god's watching you all the time right mm-hmm. so yeah. start having nightmares about it so True. who knows maybe if you hear stories about the king and queen of the fairies or the elves in some cases enough mm-hmm. um you'll start to have weird dreams about it yeah. For more on fairies and witchcraft in Scotland, you can go listen to episode eight. It bears a lot of similarity to um, fairies in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, the Fisherwife's account also obviously is recognizable in a million other accounts that we've heard across the show. Um, flying at night to a secret meeting, signing a book, having a feast and an orgy. Um, it was very easy for the Inquisition to attempt to put a satanic spin on stories about the Donas de Fuera, but it was difficult to convince these women or the public that anything they had done was satanic. <laughs> um, they didn't fold like some of the Benedanti did, instead insisting the fairies are just fairies. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know why you're reading into it more than that. It's, yeah. it's just fairies, dude. Um, the Inquisition, therefore, had limited success with this group um, and mostly just jailed these women or in the event they didn't stop the fairy talk after they were jailed, exiled them. Hmm. That, though, is a rough look at the Benedanti, Doña Fuera, and the official wife of Palermo, and each of their brushes with the Roman Inquisition. I'm very interested in the cultures who have, like, things in their culture and their consciousness about fairies before they're, like, Christianized. Mm-hmm. And, and it's how interesting it... to see how those things start to get like mixed yeah. with Christianity. Because even the the Benedanti were like, oh yeah, we do all of this like spooky like folk stuff, but in service of the Lord and on <laughs> you know religious days. <laughs> right. Which reminds me of the Celts too. Mm-hmm. 
Hmm. It's interesting to see the evolution of everything. And I do like the fact that the Inquisition is like, we're going to Satanize the story about the fairies. And the Italians were like, you can try. <laughs> right. Like they're the ones who invented the stories. Mm-hmm. Like they made them evil. I hope mm-hmm. to read more about it. And I learn, I get a bigger piece of the puzzle every time I hit another country. And it's like, oh, Italy was doing the same thing that Scotland was. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I'll hit a country in the future and it'll be a little bit bigger chunk of the picture. Well, and it kind of reminded me of Baba Yaga too, mm-hmm. where it's like, well, she's not the devil, but she's something. Yeah, she's just a weirdo who lives in a house with chicken legs. <laughs> I don't know what more you want from us. Right. And <laughs> also, like, what more could you possibly want from, like, a legend than that like there's no need to add another like christian layer to it like it's already perfect the way it is it's a like a beautiful little story and then Mm -hmm. you know you've got the christians walking in they're like we have to make this heresy Mm -hmm. somehow and i can only understand this in the context of my own beliefs so i have to attach my beliefs to this so mm-hmm. that I can demonize it. Yeah, and there's no gray area, and there's no sort of, like, like it's not this anthropological study. It's just, like, you're wrong and you're bad. <laughs> it's so <laughs> annoying. Especially because, I mean, early Christian, they were just so terrified of anything different. Mm-hmm. All the different little sects of Christianity, even the the Christians fighting each other constantly. Yep. Still are. Yeah. So anybody else even got like in the periphery of Mm -hmm. the Christians, like boxing each other in the streets. And it's like, (laughs) you're a heretic too. And it's Mm -hmm. like, I wasn't doing anything. (laughs) Right. It just hides his fennel stalk behind his back. Yep. I have fennel in the fridge right now. I'm going to cook some up so that I I can be a good fairy. Yeah, you're you're good. You're working in the service of Christ. Uh Yes. I'm really just making a salad, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I don't have any sorghum. I don't even know how I would acquire such a thing. (laughs) What is sorghum? It's. It? I think you can make molasses out of it, but that's all I know. Um, um, that one restaurant, Lambert's, where they throw rolls at you, mm-hmm. they have sorghum molasses there, which was my first introduction to it. I know I've heard of it around here, but I don't remember why. You can also make alcohol out of it. Obviously, you can do that with any grain, but I think it has a pretty high sugar content. Milo. We have Milo, Milo around here. Who's um, Milo? Sorghum is also called Milo. We grow <laughs> Milo here. I knew I, there was a reason that I knew the word, but a reason I never used it. Um, we have Milo fields. Milo. I've never heard of that. Um, it looks very similar to corn. It's an ancient grain that's packed full of nutrients. Yeah, Milo is the one that it kind of looks like a cornfield, but instead of like it turning that golden color, it Mm -hmm. turns like bright red at the tops. You may have occasionally seen it. Um, 
The only Maybe. reason my family taught me about it is we drove by a field once and my dad went, it really sucks to be next to a Milo field when you're hunting because you can't track the blood through a Milo field very easily because of all the red. A classic. I know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, classic we should sign off. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah. Um, well, we learned a lot today, mostly about grains, but also... We did. <laughs> <laughs> also about some animals and fairies um and thank you so much for listening and we will see you the first thursday of january of the new year and yeah yeah, thanks be to god blessed be